Uh, okay, so great divorce. Great divorce. I did this over two weeks with the students at the co-op. So we're going to just like knock it out. Knock it out of the park. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, Dexter, would you like to pray for us? <coughs> Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to discuss um, these things and enjoy uh, pictures of, uh, of your kingdom and uh, the afterlife. I pray that we would have a glorious conversation, a glorious discussion about um, you and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, Laura, who's an actual professional educator, would not suggest that you write your, your lecture by simply underlining things in a book and then numbering them. <laughs> this is what I used to do. See, when you were my student at Providence, this is actually, I had so little time, this is actually what I would do, is have a book and it'd just yep. be like numbers. Hey, I I couldn't tell. Somebody should me in years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? All right, so... What was C.S. Lewis's undergraduate degree? His, his undergraduate degree? Philosophy. Philosophy, that's right. But then what was his master's degree in? Was it poetry? Was it medieval literature? Or well, yeah, medieval? so it was literature. Back then they didn't have quite the specific, uh, you know, titles. But, so yeah, English literature. So he read a poem when he was an under, or when he was a graduate student, Probably. called The Seafarer. I spelled that right? No, I don't think so. Looks good. I think it's right. Okay, cool. Okay, so this is an Anglo-Saxon poem. Uh, There's a manuscript that someone found in a a corner of a library in some monastery. They they don't know who wrote it, because back then, artists didn't put their names on things. But when he was studying, he was, was he a Christian or not a Christian when he was getting his degree? Not. Not, okay. So in the poem Seafarer, he reads and, and studies this idea uh, of, of the medievals, where the seafarer in the poem actually meets Judas, who's on vacation from hell. Because God is so merciful and so gracious that he allows Judas, of all people, to have a vacation on Easter from hell. So he gets one day off a year from being in hell. Now, this idea is called the refrigerium. I know. Well, there you go. The root word is the same as the one we get for refrigerator. (laughs) Because refrigerium means refreshment. Refreshment is what it means. So the refrigerium is a Catholic doctrine. It's not mainline uh, dogma. So it's not the dogma of the Catholic Church. There's a difference. So they actually uh, have councils, and the councils decide what is dogma and what is not. This is a doctrine, not dogma. So some people believe in this and some people don't. It, it's not like a matter of obeying the faith. But the word means refreshment, and it is uh, a spiritual solace and the banquet. Okay, so here we go. So this is where the idea originally came from. The, the pagans used to have a picnic at your grave. And they called it a refrigerium. And what they would do is they would gather at your grave and eat food and refresh their memories about you. And that was how the idea originally started. Christians carried this into, the, into, the, into their Christian lives. So Christians would do this. They would go on the, on the day, on the anniversary of someone's death, 
and they would have a refrigerium, which is this picnic, where they would refresh their memories. <laughs> this is very, very strange to me, but this is what they used to do. So then Tertullian, who's a theologian, he referred in one of his works to the refrigerium interim. Spell the Latin correctly, interim. So Tertullian, have you guys ever heard of Tertullian? He's a very important father, patri uh, patristic father, they call them. So the fathers back then, they're called the patristic fathers. So the patristic father writes about the refrigerium interim, which is refreshment in the meantime, is what this means. So the idea here is that um, the refrigerium which was this picnic that people had, is actually then referred to as, it, it, it gets this added benefit of a break. You get a break, you get a rest, you get refreshment from your punishment. Um, and in 1931, when he was working on his O Hell book, you guys remember the O Hell book, the Oxford History of English Literature, excluding drama, he read of Jeremy Taylor, who was a, uh, a theologian or pastor, and this is what he had to say about the refrigerium, okay? So Taylor was commenting on Catholic, a Catholic service. And this is what he says about the Catholic service. They hath inserted this one into her public offices, that the perishing souls in hell may have sometimes remission and refreshment, like the fits of an intermeeting fever. For so it is in the Roman Missal, printed at Paris in 1626, in the Mass for the Dead, it says, and since we are unsure about the character of his life, even if his soul is unable to obtain full remission, let him at least feel some relief through the abundance of thy great mercies among whatever crushing sufferings he endures. So at, by the 1626, this idea of this picnic at the gravesite, this refugium interim, this period of rest, goes on to become of service. So masses he used to be able to pay for. You go to a church and you say, listen, I would like to have a mass held here on behalf of so-and-so. So you pay the priest and he holds a mass. So they had this service where you pay money to not refresh your memories of the dead person, but you pay money to have this service so that God, because you don't really know what the person's status was when they died, would get a break from hell. Indulgences. Indulgences, yes. Oh, yeah. And so later, the ideas of purgatory and indulgences and all of these things come out of these basic ideas. This is the start of the ideas. So the Catholic Church goes on and formulates all these other ideas about this. So when did that first, what year did you say, or what century? Well, by... You said 16th century. Yeah, by 1626. I thought, like, indulgences were much before that. Yes, they were. But, But this particular service... That, that some of the Catholic churches used. Not all of them, but it was found in certain books. That's what Jeremy Taylor, who was a Puritan, was writing about this Catholic service. Does this okay. make sense? So, so it's kind of a disconnected sort of path as to how C.S. Lewis got to this idea for the Great Divorce. But when he was in a, a, a student, he read about uh, this holiday that Judas gets from, from hell on Easter, then he hears about this refugium um, that, that he reads about from, from Taylor when he's studying. And so he starts to put the pieces together a little bit. Okay? And, and the man who wrote this book, who is a C.S. Lewis expert, Walter Hooper, 
he was uh, his secretary right before Lewis died, and he's actually the one in charge of all of his papers. So he wrote this guide to the Great Divorce where he starts to explain this very lengthy path that C.S. Lewis took from his 20s to his 40s where he came up with this idea. And it's based on this not Catholic dogma, okay? It's not purgatory. It's an older idea than that. It's where the idea from purgatory came from. Where when did purgatory, when, when did that appear in the Catholic Church? Well, that came slowly as well. And it, that didn't actually become something that they taught until after the 12th century. So this is prior to the 12th Yeah, so this is prior to the 12th century. So you take the bad idea of, say, purgatory... And you take C.S. Lewis's idea of a vacation from hell, and you go back and they have the same source. Okay? That, that, that's the key point. So C.S. Lewis himself did not believe in purgatory exactly. That's kind of his point. He doesn't want to believe, because purgatory is this place you go where you're cleansed. You go there and you burn for a time. And it gets, a, it gets away those last bits of impurities that you didn't quite clean off when you were living. <laughs> and after you spend a certain amount of time there, you get out. That's why people used to pay to shorten your sentence in purgatory. But C.S. Lewis is not playing with that idea. He's playing with the idea that you simply get a vacation from hell for a time. So, at one of the Inkling meetings, uh, yeah, so Tolkien writes a, a letter to his son in 1933 saying, you Lewis is reading from that insufferable vacation from hell book. So he, he hated this idea. He hated the idea. And he hated hearing it. He didn't like the book at all. They are really loud today. What book are you referring to? The Great Divorce. So when he was writing The Great Divorce... 1933, he said it to his son? In 1933... Hold on, let me see. Okay, so 1933, Warney Lewis was the first one to write about the fact that he was writing this book. And so later on... In 1940 is when Tolkien wrote okay. to his son saying that he's reading from this stupid book. So he worked on this book for a really long time. The, the, this book was developed slowly because when he originally had the idea in 33 and Warning was talking about it in his diary, he couldn't quite work out how to make it function. Like, how do you, what, what does that actually look like? What does heaven look like? What's the point of all this? So then later we know from Tolkien that he was, at that, by 1940, reading portions of it. Uh, to the Inklings, and Tolkien hated it. Um, Tolkien was Catholic. <laughs> yeah, so so we go back now, and there is a sort of a binary, like something going along, a, a second rail to this whole thing. Uh, and this is what Tertullian was dealing with. Okay, so we all know that there is a great judgment, right? There's a great judgment at the end where Jesus judges everybody and separates everybody from uh, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. Now, the question is, and it's a good theological question, what happens when you die? Do you go directly to the end? Do you go somewhere while you're waiting? Right? Or um, it, it, do you just go to sleep for a while and you're, and you're there and you're physically, like, they call it soul sleep is one of the options. So you're just resting. And you're resting, and you're resting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. Or you're awake, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. Or you just get beamed directly to the end. Because once you die, you go outside of time, and outside of time, it, there is no time, so you just, all time is the same time. 
So you have these different explanations about what happens after you die. It's called the interim state. Okay? The, 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 the interim state. What happens in between. So Tertullian is the one who said, well, what happens is they go and they have this refrigerium interim. They have this period of rest. And if you take the parables of Jesus, say the one with Lazarus and the rich man, there is uh, Jesus. Well, I actually don't think it's a parable. I don't think it counts as a parable. But that's like a story for another day. So Jesus is talking about these two men. Both of them die. One goes to a comfortable place with Abraham, and they're eating and feasting, and it's glorious. And then the other guy, the rich guy, dies. And he goes to a place that you can see, that you can uh, talk to the people back and forth, but you can't cross back and forth between the two places. And the rich man is in an uncomfortable place, a place that's not so comfortable. And so this is partially where you get this idea um, of uh, the inter intermediate state where you're just sort of waiting around in something like purgatory. So in the Old Testament, though, do you guys have heard of the idea of Hades? Okay. So there, there's also this place, Paradise, which is based on a, a, per, it's a Persian word in the Old Testament that they use, meaning a garden that has walls. That's very pleasant. So in the Old Testament... Uh, Christians would go to this place called Hades, and the, and the dead, all the dead were there, and everybody's waiting for something. Okay, and this is where uh, Samuel was before they brought him up. And what did Samuel look like when they brought him up? By the way, he looked just like himself because he was not immediately. What did they all? They were terrified for a moment, right? He looked like a god. It said, "They said, oh, it looks like a god has come up." And then they're like, oh, "It's Samuel." And the reason they actually recognize that Saul recognizes that as Samuel is because of his clothes, yeah. not because of his face. Yeah. Because he was wearing his ro official robes of, of office. So there's all this stuff in the Bible about this intermediate state, where you go, what's going on while you're there, and, and all of that stuff existed. So for C.S. Lewis, okay, his views are kind of difficult to understand. Because one, he believed that there is a final choice. You choose heaven or hell in the end. But what he did not agree on and what he did not necessarily believe was that that happened before you died. Okay? Now, I, I would say the scriptures are quite clear. After you die, you don't get to make a choice. The choice is made here. <laughs> After that is when you deal with it. Okay? Now, where do believers go when they die now? Well, they go directly, the New Testament is very clear, to be with Jesus. Now, what does that mean? I don't know, because he's sitting in heaven. Okay, the book of Revelation talks about this pool, this sort of glass sea before his throne where all these people are waiting for him to judge the world. Maybe that's the place. I don't know. Okay, this part's a little fuzzy. Because uh, also, when he came out of the ground, all these, other, all these tombs were opened, and all these people came out, it says in Matthew. Where did they all go? Mm -hmm. and, and what happened to all the people who died before his resurrection? Is it different than what happens to all the people who die after his resurrection? Okay? Now, this was a part actually on my, my ordination exam that I did not do well. Because uh, I, I very passionately and thoroughly explained where everyone goes, and then I was told in the end that that's the Old Testament that you're talking about. <laughs> Great. So then they gave me like this, this stack of books I had to read. Uh, and then I started talking about the Great Divorce, and they were just like, stop. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I, it, it is a dangerous idea. C.S. Lewis believes that there is a last moment of choice, but he doesn't believe it happens before you die. He thinks it's possible that it happens afterwards, sort of. And what we have to understand in this book 
is not that C.S. Lewis is not writing theology proper. Okay, he's writing what he called a supposal. You guys remember this? Um, this is also sort of what Lord of the Rings, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is about. Suppose there was a world where instead of an incarnate man, uh, the 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 Lord God came as an incarnate lion. <laughs> and you're like, just suppose what that world would be like, talking animals. And that's what the whole book is. So this is, suppose there was actually this opportunity for people to take a vacation from hell. And what would that be like? What would heaven be like? And so he doesn't want you to think of his descriptions of heaven as if he's, right, at the end, George MacDonald tells him, go back and make sure that you tell everybody that you're not described, like you didn't have a vision you had a dream, and they're different things, okay? He himself was very careful about this, and I think people get very confused by this book because they suddenly start thinking C.S. Lewis is, is like preaching gospel truth or something. But it's a supposal, it's an idea. It's supposed to be helpful. And remember what he used to say in Mere Christianity, if it's helpful, what do you do with it? Use it. If it's not helpful, what do you do with it? Okay, so that is like an underlying premise through the whole book. If this is helpful, use it. If it's not, don't. He's not very dogmatic about it. Okay? So, <laughs> so then, all of this is in the background, and he writes this book. So in it, he, he himself is one of the characters in the book, and he is at this bus stop in some dingy town. And w w describe that place to me. What is the, what, what is the place where, at the set, where the book is set originally? Where the bus stop is. What is that town like? Gray town. Gray town. Gray town. Yeah. No colors. No, no colors. No light. Okay. And are the buildings real? It sounds like Seattle. It sounds like Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> seaside. It sounds like seaside. <laughs> now, are the buildings real? Yeah, they're imaginary. Yeah, they're They can see through them. And he asks, well, what's the point of these? And it says, well, people, you know, prefer this sort of safety, even though it's a lie. Like, oh. Look, now we're getting real deep, yes, folks. Okay, now does everybody live in the same area? No, because they can't get along. Because they can't get along. So they, they move so, to another street. Yes, and remember, sin is separation. So hell is a place where there's all kinds of separation. People can't live together. So they keep going further out and further out in building places. And so in order to go see Napoleon's house, how, far, how long do you have to travel? Yeah, it's like 1,500 years one guy made the journey. And what is, of all things, Napoleon doing in his house? He's walking back and forth. He's walking and back and forth and blame shifting all these other people. Okay, so he finally gets on a bus, and, and the bus takes this journey, and then they end up in this other place. Now, what's that place described as? At the end of the bus. It's so real it hurts. It's so real it hurts. Okay. Now, if you have a Bible, get, get it out. And what we will do is turn to John 20. John 20, verses 19 to 23. John 20, 19 to 23. Who would like to read that for me? If you can hear over the band. <laughs> I'll read it. Okay, go for it, Laura. 19 to 23? 19 to 23, yeah. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. 
As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay. So at the very start of the story, there the apostles are in a closed, locked room. And then Jesus is in their midst. Now, this has... It does not explain any more than that. So, people who talk about the resurrected body, talk about the fact that you can walk through walls because you're a ghost, and your body is not real. Ah, see, there you go. But that, then you, by good and necessary consequence... Okay, uh, or or the the three ways of doing theology. Good and necessary consequences is the first one. Clearly, he doesn't have a real body because he can walk through walls. Okay, well now let's check that against other verses in the Bible. Well, he no, fish. he eats fish and the fish doesn't fall out of it, right? Mm-hmm. So clearly, he has a real body. All right, they so what's that? They touched his hands. And they touched his hands, so mm-hmm. they can touch him. So he is actually real. So how do? You, so then, okay, well let's think about this for a moment. Um, somebody must have unlocked the door. Okay, where does it say that? Or it doesn't say that. Okay, so the idea here is that Jesus is more real than the locked door. So it's not that he is a ghost, it's that the door is a ghost. The, the, the door is ethereal. The, the things in this world aren't really real. Now, here we have to be very careful because Platonism is. Straight up Platonism, pure, one hundred percent Platonism is wrong and evil and very dangerous. But there is some sense here where this world is just a shadow cast from heaven. Okay, that that's where the real place is, and and I think that that you start to get into that, it's very difficult to explain, and there are a lot of um, traps. But this is the idea that C.S. Lewis has. He has this idea where heaven is a realer place than here. And so these ghosts who have been, turns out, in hell, uh, are getting thinner and thinner and thinner and less real and less real and less real and less real. <laughs> and so now they go and they cut themselves on the grass, they try to walk on the water, and the, and, and the river is like tumbling them down the right way, and they get very bruised. So as time goes on, when we go to heaven, we get more real. That's why the people that he sees who have been there longer are more and more glorious, more and more substantial. And he, you know, he refers to the mountains being like the apostles. And and this is where he gets this idea of like uh, he's just he's using metaphorical language, like the Bible does, because the Bible talks about the fact that we're supposed to be doves, but that doesn't mean God wants us to lay eggs. Remember this is what he talked about in mere Christianity. God talks about the fact that there are horns blowing in heaven. Is that exactly? Is that what we're going to have as horns? And I, and I think that when we think about heaven, we have a very difficult time ex- trying to imagine it being anything other than like what this world is like. Um, and so you have to talk about it as like golden streets. Well, I think that's um, I, I think that that's a helpful idea, but it's been taken too far. So everybody thinks that they're going to live in some. I was told when I was a child, I'm going to live in a mansion with golden streets. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go and dig out all the bricks and this cobblestone. I'm just going to take all that gold home. It's just free gold lying around. But that's not exactly what it's going to look like. So it's very much like C.S. Lewis is doing something very similar to Scripture, where he's using very metaphorical language. 
Okay. Um, so, for example, somebody tries to steal apples and then what happens? But what what happens to the person? He couldn't carry more than the smallest one. He couldn't carry more than the smallest one for very long. Okay, because it was so heavy. And then when he finds out that hell is only a crack in the ground, uh, he says that a butterfly could swallow it. And what would happen to the butterfly? Nothing. Because everything in heaven is so real, so big, so substantial, that it, a butterfly could swallow hell, which is, which is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and less significant. And, and this is his vision of heaven and hell. Now, what do you guys think about that? The idea. I like this idea that um, we become more real. Yes. That's somehow kind of wrong true. There's more... That's reality. What we're living here, yes. we think it's real, real reality. Right. Is on the other side. Here. On yeah. The other yeah. Side. Yeah. Exactly. Because right. What What are you? What are we always learning? We're always learning. Like we're trying to figure out what's going on down here. And what we're always trying. What I you know. What I find. I'm always reminding everybody is that we don't look with eyes of flesh. Right. You have to see what's really going on. It's like a thing. I feel like I'm always telling people. And then when I read C.S. Lewis, it's very comforting because I'm like, yeah, there is this real place, a real will a real, like somebody is guiding all of this stuff and who it makes sense to, right? There's like a whole real plan in his mind. There's a whole real overview of what's happening and, and what's happening isn't what it looks like is happening. Right? How's a, a Jewish carpenter dying on a cross overcoming the world? Right? It looks a certain way, but how it looks is not what it really is. And, and I think the whole world is this way and I'm with you. C.S. Lewis comes and I'm like, yes, I get it. There is something that's more real. Now, it's not platonic, Okay? But there, it, it, uh, Plato was a little kind of on the right path. Yeah. So, I guess two things. So what is Platonism exactly? And then why is how small? Well, because you become, you become less and less substantial. You become thinner and thinner and smaller and sm- okay. thinner and smaller. So you fit in a very tiny place. And even though you, it takes you 1,500 years to get out to Napoleon's house and back, it's still only this tiny insubstantial thing. Because what happens is, is the further you get away from God, the, le- the less substance you have. The closer you get to him, the more substance you have. Yeah, and that's what I like about C.S. Lewis, too, is this whole thing is relational. They talk, he talks when they're in heaven about the going to see the Lord Jesus. Right? Let's go to where we can see. They're not even yet close enough. They, have, they themselves have to travel a long distance. But as they get closer to a person, they become more substantial. So the further they get, the less substantial they get. Now, I can't tell if he's an annihilationist, because he's talking about the fact that the, the sun comes up and this whole place disappears. Hell dis- is going to disappear. And it's very vague when, when he's describing it. It's a little clearer in the last battle, because as Aslan is greeting everyone into Aslan's country, those, everyone has to look at his face again. It's very relational. They look in his face, and they either go through the door, or what do they do? You guys remember? The last battle. Some of them do do that, yes. But those, you either go through the door into Aslan's country, or you pass into his shadow and disappear. And you're like, whoa, C.S. Lewis. (laughs) That's called annihilationism, son, and that's not what happens. Okay? People do not, like, just cease to exist. Uh, they, and, and I think this is where his eschatology gets a little funky. Well, it was already a little funky. But, um, <laughs> but it gets I a like little, his funk. Yeah, his funk is helpful. His funk is very helpful. Well, it's like the, the grumbling woman, she also just snaps and disappears. She snaps and disappears. So, she becomes a grumble. Yeah. Right. 
So it's a, that's a good segue because so he believes that you cease to exist, which I don't think is what Scripture says. Now God, right? They, he talks about hell as Gehenna, and this is also metaphorical. People, why does why do we have these descriptions of hell that we give? Well, there was this trash heap outside of Jerusalem that was burning 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and it just burned and burned and burned. And that's what he refers to. He calls Gehenna hell. And hell, when you look at the Bible and the, the Greek word, is this burning pyre, uh, sorry, pile of trash. And so is that, you know, we're all going to just be in a big burning pile of trash if we go to hell forever? No. But it's helpful to understand sort of what, what it feels like to be in this place that we're, you would go. And so annihilationism is also inaccurate. But, the, but he has all these now case studies. Okay? He's doing this thing where he's, de- he's showing you his ethics. Remember, he left off from direct apologetics to start writing stories and other things that were apologetic, right? Um, Screwtape Letters is apologetic. Uh, the Narnia series is, is ap- apologetic. The uh, Ransom Trilogy, there's an apology going on here. He's, he's making a case through aesthetically for the Christian faith. And so here now he's going to go through, he enters in a number of case studies, and then because he's a philosophy major, he enters into what the most famous form of philosophy, the dialogue. Where he then has a dialogue, right? The characters are having dialogues with one another, and through that you're learning all this philosophical uh, understanding of heaven is deepening as, as they're talking. And then he gets into a conversation with his guide. Now, who's his guide? George MacDonald. Now, when um, Dante went to hell, who was his guide in the inferno? Virgil, right? So, uh, this ancient poet was his guide. So, of course. C.S. Lewis's guide is going to be George MacDonald, uh, the great writer of Fantasties, the great Scottish heretic. And the way the books end, it's the same too. <laughs> it's in the books end the same way too. So he's clearly a medievalist because he's he's copying Dante, right? He's he's given the nod. But let's talk about the case studies. The woman who was grumbling becomes a grumble, right? Now, how many of the case studies end up where the person chooses to stay? Not her. Only Not, one. Only one. And what was his sin? Lust. Lust. Okay, so the most base of the sins that the people have is the guy. So the person who, who's closest to heaven, closest to staying, is the person who, in most of our minds, is, is in this world would be the worst sin. Because, right? Think about sins: pride, no problem; lust, oh, you're you, you're gross. Okay, and what was Jesus always telling everybody? The prostitutes are closer to heaven than the Pharisees. Why? Because their sins are similar. Their sins are much simpler. Okay? Spiritual pride, which is, this is the point C.S. Lewis was always making, spiritual pride is the, is the most dangerous of the sins. And so you have a bishop who's more concerned about the journey than the arrival. Remember that guy? He was a heretic. And he would rather keep journeying than ever, he would rather ask questions than ever have answers. Okay, what were some of the other case studies, the more complicated sins? There's the the tyrannical mother. I thought was kind of an interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Give him, he's mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was very similar to the wife who wanted the husband so she could take him back to hell and finish her work. It's just <laughs> terrifying to me. Yeah, poor, poor Robert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my, gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. I was like, can we skip this one? Yeah, yeah. This oh is, that one was creepy, wasn't it? I was it? actually like, can we? Can we just, I 
Fast yeah. forward. Fast forward. Yeah. Well, he does he does that kind of thing really well. It's like uh, Winston in Paralandra, or Satan. Satan in Paralandra is very terrifying and it's very subtle. And uh, he understands C.S. Lewis evil. I think far more far better than most of us. Right? Evil doesn't look like Saw Four. Saw Four is not what what it, it's like. It's pantomime evil. Like real, yeah. When you watch like Schindler's List, then you're like, okay, this actually is more terrifying than Soft One. Soft. Soft. It's it's a horror movie. Don't even. Don't ever even. Don't even remember that I said. Watched a horror movie. No, good. You're you're in good company. Okay, so what? Have you neither? Not since I was a small child, though. Like fifteen. Anyway, um, <laughs> you were smaller then. I was a much smaller child then. So, what are some of the other case studies? Who's the guy with the puppet? Yeah, the puppet guy is also super creepy. Okay. So, this was one that C.S. Lewis talked a lot about for reasons that were very personal to him. So, you had this guy. I'm going to get very crude here. Okay. And he on this string has this little puppet man. Oh yeah. And, and the, the woman who comes to see him, what does she look like? Right? What is, how is she described coming to this yacht? Remember? There's this great parade. There's this beautiful woman. She's glorious. She has this whole train of followers. And C.S. Lewis says, oh, somebody very important must be coming. And George and I was like, oh, she's like a washerwoman or something. Right? She's like the least important person in this world who seems to have to be quite somebody in heaven. Why? Because she loved, right? Everybody was her daughter, everybody was her son, uh, every man, it was, she was the wife of every man, like she, she just loved and supported and was, was all things to all men, is essentially what he describes. Which I love that he does it, he uses that verse describing a woman, not a man. Um, okay, so she comes, here she is, and what is this that he's using? Remember, he's got the little guy on the string. What's that? Is it a lizard? No, that, that, no, the lizard is the guy with lust, which we're going to come back to. Okay. okay, so here's what happens. So this guy wants sympathy. He wants her to feel bad. He's, he's manipulating her, using her emotions. So he, this guy is what C.S. Lewis would call a domestic tyrant. Somebody who wants pity, somebody who wants you to feel bad, somebody who wants to not make a big deal, but is constantly making a big deal. And this was the woman that he lived with. This is how she was. She was this person. She always had this little actor, this little guy that went ahead of her, this person. And, and you're supposed to feel sorry for her, and you're supposed to pity her, and, and that's supposed to get you to do all these things to serve her. And this is how he always, this is how the woman he lived with, he described her. She was a domestic tyrant. Him, Warney, uh, the servants, the neighbors, the doctor, this is how she treated everybody. And so this is the guy, she's got to, he's got to stop using this to talk to her, and he's got to talk to her directly. But what does he end up doing? Right, he ends up shrinking until there's only this guy. This guy gets bigger. Okay, and so he, he, he ceases to be himself. Now, he's only this character that he was pretending to be his whole life in order to manipulate this woman who, at this point, cannot be manipulated. So, you have, this is um, not love so much here, but this is a very interesting thing that a lot of people do. 
people use their hurt feelings all the time to manipulate everybody else. I think it's very popular sin at the moment. Okay, the mother and the wife were using love. That was their idol. They want to love this person. Give me this person so I can love them. And it's like a little terrifying, right? Um, so you, then you have the bishop who doesn't want to come to answers. You have all these different characters. Now let's talk about the guy with the lust. <laughs> because he has this lizard and the angel wants to put it to death. You remember the story? Yeah. So, but he doesn't want the angel to put it to death because what's going to happen to him? It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt, right? <laughs> so then he finally lets the angel. And the angel crushes it and stomps on it. And the guy actually does feel a, lot, a great deal of pain. But then what does the lizard turn into? A nice horse. A nice, beautiful nice. horse. Okay? And, and he climbs on the horse and rides into the hills. And he's the only one that actually chooses to stay. Okay, but first he has this. So this is where it gets a little interesting because, so you're telling me that all you, ha all this guy had to do was come to where an angel was, and the angel is the thing that he crushes this lust that this man has, and 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 it's kind of like a purgatory idea. He goes and he's waiting and waiting and waiting for someone to purify him, to cleanse him, so that he can carry on. That's not exactly what happens, but that seems like what's happening. It's a very strange character that one, but. C.S. Lewis's broader ethical point, okay, is that putting something to death like that, it, it's, a, it's a creature that you carry with you that you can crush and kill. <clears throat> it's very different than the other people's sins. It's something he's delivered from, opposed to something that he has to stop doing from within himself, in, in a weird way. And so, think of the woman who's caught in adultery, okay? Her lizard was crushed by Jesus, and she's ridden her horse into the scriptures where everybody remembers who she is now. Right? We don't know her name, but who cares? We know who the woman is. And that's kind of like what this is. She's great in the kingdom of heaven. And she was closer to the kingdom of heaven. She just needed somebody like the woman at the well to come and crush this dragon that she has that's, that, that, and, and deliver her. And I, and I think this is very helpful. There are sins where the person is closer to heaven. There are sins that, like his story, make you less substantial and keep you further from heaven. Okay? Now, at the very end of the book, there's something very strange. He sees two, he sees a group of people playing chess. Can I make a quick comment? Yes. On all that? So, that reminds me of the whole reality thing. So when it comes to like a lizard versus a stallion, mm -hmm. you kind of get at that idea again. So a stallion of righteousness is much, much more real than like this little lizard of lust that has been killed. Right. The, it's it's yeah. been turned into something greater. Yeah, it has to. Yeah, yeah. Everything that goes to heaven, like he has a line about how it goes to heaven that must die and be resurrected. Something so much more glorious. Than something this. more right. If you put to death the lust in you, yeah. what it's resurrected to become is is, is greater. Yeah. Just like any person is. Anything that dies and, go, and and is cleansed and goes into heaven becomes greater than the thing that it was. And and so you know that's why like your sorrows our pains, the tribulations, the trials, all the things that happen to us here. On, on the other side of every grave where we've had to bury ourselves, to die to ourselves, on the other side of it is an empty tomb. And, and it's hard for us to imagine what's on the other side of those graves. Because here it's just a graveyard of pain, difficulty, and sorrow. And you think, think, you're going to be standing in that graveyard on the other side when you go to heaven, and it's going to be nothing but empty tombs. And you're going to see it all completely differently than how you see it now. Just like the lizard turns into a stallion. And, and if you, in mere Christianity, this is what C.S. Lewis is always talking about. 
he's, he's talking. This is this book is is apologetics. This is him explaining in, in picture form what he is talking about in mere Christianity and all his other books on ethics. Because what are we becoming? Okay, part of why. Okay, most of these people don't choose to stay in heaven is, is because the choice has already been made. That's his point. That's his point in his, in his um, sermon, The Way to Glory. We are becoming something. We've made, we make the choice, not at the end, not, not with there's all this pressure, but we make the choice a little at a time every day and as we're progressing either towards heaven or hell. We're progressing towards something that looks like a god or something that looks like a demon. And, and that's, most of these people don't stay because they've already made the choice. So it's very interesting that he, he, he ends it that way because that's not what you... People are like, oh, look at him, he's giving people choices. Well, it's quite clear these people have already made the choice. There is no talking them down. They, they, are, they have set their face towards hell and they will not be dissuaded. The only one that stays is the guy who's delivered, who then has to do a kind of dying at the end. And so he sees these people playing chess and what he realizes is that even this whole thing is a metaphor. These choices they've been making all along, and, and they're here because of choices they made all along. They're leaving because of choices they made all along. They chose hell a long time ago, and they're not going to be dissuaded from it. And, and this is where George MacDonald comes in. He says, there's only two kinds of people. The people where God says, thy will be done. Right? Or those people who say to God, thy will be done. And that's it. Not, not quite. Those to whom God says, thy will be done. Yeah, right. I... Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So there's only two kinds of people. People who get their way or people who submit to God's way. Okay? Either our will will prevail or his will won't prevail. And that's the point. That's the whole point of the whole book. What do you guys think about that? <sighs> Cramming a lot into it. Everybody's got to serve somebody. It's either God or yourself. <laughs> yeah, either God or self, right? It's Christ or chaos. Um, he talks about, you know, only when you bury the seed does anything grow yeah. and multiply. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just associate that with myself. If I don't get rid of myself, I'm not going to grow. Right, and multiply, right? Yeah. And become something other. Because think about how different an acorn looks from a, the tree that comes from the acorn, right? I mean, they couldn't be more different. You take... Uh, I was just looking at an apple seed this morning, and I was like, "Look, this is, I can't believe this turns into an apple tree. Yeah. I mean, literally. All, everything is there inside of it. Yeah, tiny and, little And thing. unless you bury it, it's, and water it and tend it. And this is what we are. We are seeds. Mm -hmm. And this is why they used to call graveyards gardens of stone. Yeah. Yep. Which, is, which that is a great movie, by the way, Gardens of Stone. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> this is like uh, one of my wife's and I's favorite hobbies, uh, that we've developed since we got married, I got it from my mom, is I like to go to graveyards and see what people want to see when they come out of the ground. Because there are some people, like, the first thing people are going to see on Resurrection Day, and you stand at the head of, a, a, like, where the, the, the headstone is, and you look, and you're like, this is a great place to come out of the ground. Um, like, the, the, there's, in, on the Potomac, where George Washington is buried, was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I was like, this is what I want to see. Until I was on Whidbey Island, there's a graveyard there on a hill where you come out of the ground and it's like this valley and then the ocean and the mountains in the background. I was like, yeah, yeah bury me here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll take the sea if that's all I get. But I wouldn't mind being buried in a spot where you come up and you see nice things, right? As opposed to like the graveyard in Kenmore. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you, you think. 
that you're going to come out of a grave and actually see this at some point. Yeah, because what? Because I'm going to be cremated. Well, so you're still going to be resurrected. Yeah, but I'm probably my ashes will be just scattered through in the air. I mean, where's that going to? I'm going to come well, up. You're, you, are, I, you went from the general <laughs> to the very specific. Generally, people are buried in the ground. Now, even somebody who's buried in the ground, okay, is their body like somebody who's buried there 200 years ago? Is their body still there? No. No. Huh. But yeah, that's where they're going to come up. Do you know that? <laughs> well, I'm, not, I'm not. I, I, I don't really worry about so, that because we were made from dust and we're going to return to dust. Here we go. God can recreate yeah, it. Doesn't matter. Us. Sure, but hold on. This is why you guys get so dogmatic. Oddly enough, opposite of me. So, from, in, the, in the book of Matthew, when the tombs are opened, the people come out of the tombs they were buried in. Yeah. Oh, there it is. <laughs> so you come so out of the tomb you were buried. That might have been a one-off. That might have been a one-off. <laughs> Jesus did. So there's lots of things that Hazus did at that point. Like you come out of the tomb you were put in. Anyway, don't don't distract us here at the end. <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about the end. Yeah, we are talking about the end. <laughs> is it though? Well, don't bounce My grandma just got cremated, and my mom's about to be cremated. Yeah. So I mean, I this is a why. curious thought, and because I've heard some pastors like. Hardcore be like yeah, cremation. So, you should not do that because your body needs to well, come back. I'm even more confusing because I don't. If you're cremated, whatever. I mean, your body. Wait, dust to dust. What? Right, your body. Yeah. But your body is going to come back exactly where it was last left. My point is that I do not want to be cremated under any circumstances. But I'm, it's perfectly I'm legitimate get, for other people to do it. Come back. Please don't last come back. <laughs> but I mean, that was what they used to use against the first century Christians. First century Christians. They were like, oh, these people believe in a resurrection. So, so let's dismember it. them and burn it and scatter the ashes and terrify all the Christians. And the Christians were like, we're going to see even, even louder now because that doesn't bother us. Because it's right. right. We're, all, we're all going to be resurrected. In scripture, when people come back out of a tomb, they come back out of the tomb they were put in. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> don't, don't get too distracted However, by it. However, all of those. Yeah, and what are we going to see on resurrection day? The Lord. The Lord Jesus. Jesus. Right? Because either in the east or the west or the north or the south, everyone's going to see him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to all see him simultaneously. And, you know, if this was a class on the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, it's heaven and earth, the veil is taken away, and the two things are married together and become one place. So you realize, as C.S. Lewis says, that heaven is, a, is an extension of where you are right now. Right. So it's, it's this idea that everything in the world is going to be destroyed and they're going to make a new world is actually not true. Heaven and heaven and earth are going to be married together and the two will become one. Uh, just like at the end, because at the end of Revelation there's a bunch of marriages. Uh, Jesus and his bride, the earth and heaven uh, and all things are reconciled and, and you get to be you wake up and even if you're looking at Whidbey Island it will be heaven because this is just an extension of that. right? And that's what he means in, in, in the last battle where you go further up and further in to the, and it's always, you're going further up and further in to Aslan's country and you're like, oh, this is this is like Narnia, but better. And then they go up a little further, like this is even better than the last fake Narnia. And then they just keep going, forever. Yay! All right, Judy, we pray for us. Yeah. All right. Uh, Lord, thank you for the promise that we get to be with you in paradise because of the sacrifice of your Son. May we continue to pursue uh, your goodness, truth, and beauty, and be a part of your being in all that we do. And we love you and pursue your truth and wisdom. Yes, you're great. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>